Welcome here, and I'm excited, actually, I'm always excited about a series that we're walking into, but I'm especially excited about opportunities for us to give more background, understanding, and teaching to books of the Bible. So we're going into a series right now called Sincerely John, and we're going to be looking at 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and these are epistles, these are letters from the Apostle John. We're going to show you that a little bit uh, later yet. But if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 7 to 13. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 13. Now, for those of you that are here, for those of you that are watching at home, if you do not know where the book of 1 John is, in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 13. And one of the ways we like to show respect for God's Word here at Pathways, we do like to stand for the reading of His Word. So if you're here, please stand. If you're at home, please stand. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 13. Here's what it says. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us His Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank You so much for this morning. And I thank You for the time that we could be spending here together. I thank You that we have Your Word that we're able to walk into and to draw our attention, to learn from, to grow from. And so Jesus, I pray that as we're looking into Your Word this morning, that we would come to a deeper understanding of what's going on in the world around John and the writing, why it was written, and how we are able to grow through it. In your name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So, we're just going to walk this forward in terms of giving a bit of a summary to the book of 1 John, and then we're going to talk about some of the key things in it for us, and we're going to talk about what we should even do with this book of the Bible. Now, it's critically important to remember that any time that we're doing a study of a book of the Bible, it's really important that you read through that book of the Bible. Because what I'm going to do with you in this time together is give you an understanding of who wrote it, why it was written, when it was written, what are the key things in it, and why it matters to us. So it's a teaching. Are you ready? Here we go. Who wrote it? Now, here's the interesting thing. The author of this particular epistle never identifies themselves. In any way, shape, or form, do they identify themselves. Um, but earliest of Christians, from the beginning of times, believed that this actually was John, the apostle, who wrote it. As a matter of fact, there were a group of people that you could say were witnesses to the whole thing. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Polycarp. I know, for those of you who are into fishing, it's not a fish. Polycarp is a guy who was actually a disciple of John. And so if you can imagine it, Jesus had his disciples, of which John was one, and then John 
carried on that understanding of disciples making disciples. And so then Polycarp was, in fact, actually one of John's disciples. Now, there's an interesting old legend about Polycarp. And this old legend takes us back to the time where Jesus is talking, and and he's talking about not stopping children from coming to him. And I don't know if you remember the part of the story, but it says that there's a boy, a little boy that comes to Jesus. Now the legend suggests, or the myth suggests, that that boy was in fact Polycarp. I love children, this is awesome. (laughs) So it suggests that that in fact was actually Polycarp, and Polycarp became a disciple of John, and Polycarp actually also became a bishop of a region called Smyrna. So he's the bishop of Smyrna, and uh, so this is a guy who loved the Lord. He loved the Lord up into his, uh, an old age, and he was a disciple of John. And he wrote in his own epistle to the Philippians, he indicated that he believed that this letter was actually of John. Later on, uh, there's a student of Polycarp. There's a disciple of Polycarp that comes along, and his name is Irenaeus. And Irenaeus is a guy who also wrote many things, and in, in his writing we find that he attributes 1 John to John. Now, if that wasn't enough for you, this particular author indicates that he was actually one of the disciples. If there's any identified marker within this text about who this may be, or one of whom he may be, it's this. It says, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. And so this particular author associates himself as an eyewitness to the account of Jesus. So here's what we know. We know that this person was an apostle. They were there in the time of Jesus. They witnessed the things of Jesus, and they passed them now on to others. We know that one of his disciples attributed this particular writing to John. We know that the disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, attributed this writing to John, and the earliest of Christians attributed this writing to John. So we can very safely and confidently say that 1 John was written by John. Now, some of you might say, well, yeah, it's in the name. I'm not confident it was necessarily in the name back then. And so the author identifies themselves to some extent as as an apostle. Now, most of what we know about John actually comes from the Bible itself, uh, particularly the Gospels. And interestingly, the Apostle John is mentioned by name in every Gospel except the one named after him. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but in the book of John, John never actually is identified by his name. He's identified as the one whom Jesus loved. That's the identifying marker here. And according to the Synoptic Gospels, uh, the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you were to take a look at your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice that John is different. John is written with a different intention. As a matter of fact, John wrote the book of John with one intention, that from the point that you start reading it to the point that you finish reading it, that you will know all that you need to know that Jesus is Lord and Savior and you need Him in order to have the forgiveness of sins. And the others have a tendency to be a little bit more of a historical record. 
John's is much more the notion that I'm going to give you this complete work and in it, you will have everything you need for salvation. So according to Synoptic Gospels, John was the, one of the first disciples that Jesus called to follow him. Like many of Jesus' disciples, he was a fisherman by trade. Uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 4, verses 21 and 22, it says this, Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, Zebedee, not Zebedee, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat, and their father uh, with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, Jesus called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And, and they were actually, as brothers, known as sons of thunder. That's an interesting name, right? Sons of thunder. And there's a variety of ways that people have tried to identify what that term means. The indication is that these are pretty passionate guys, and uh, maybe they can get a little hot on their collar sometimes. Sons of thunder. That when they're upset or excitable, they boom. Well, here's something else that you may or may not know or remember in your reading of the Scriptures. You see, John is also in the Scriptures one of the pillars of the early church. When Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, I don't know if you have much time reading through the book of Galatians, but Galatians really is all about freedom in Christ. Uh, Galatians is a letter that's written with the intention of helping new Gentile Christians, people that were not Jewish, come to an understanding of what they were in the, in, in the kingdom, like who they were as they stood before Jesus. And there was a group of teachers that came in that tried suggesting that if you don't follow the Mosaic laws, you cannot be a Christian. And Paul's saying, no, that's not true. And so in this, when Paul writes to the Galatians, a false teacher told them, right, in order to follow Christ, they needed to follow the Mosaic law. And this was opposite of what Paul was teaching them. And so in order to prove that he was right to preach the gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles and to teach that they didn't need to follow the law to be saved, Paul appealed to the apostles. And particularly, he appealed to Peter, James, and John. And Paul makes a point of saying that even these three apostles had nothing to add to the gospel that he preached, so why would the Galatians listen to someone else and let some random teacher add weight, the weight of the law to the Christian walk? Here's how he says it. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, also known as Peter, and John, those esteemed as, ready? Pillars. Gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me, and they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 7 to 9. And so Paul refers to Peter, James, and John as pillars of the church because they played an integral role in supporting, building up, and maintaining the Christian movement. The early church stood on their leadership when the, there were disputes about how Christians should live out and behave within the Christian walk in terms of what it means to follow Jesus and what he looked like. The church appealed to these three original disciples of Jesus who had witnessed more of his personal ministry than anybody else. you got to remember that these were the ones that were there at Mount Trans Transfiguration. 
These are the ones that he took with him to pray. These are the ones that he leaned on a lot. And, and, and what you find actually in terms of Jesus' pattern of leadership is that if we walk it backwards, we've got the multitude of people, you have the 72, you have the 12, and you have the three. And these are the three. So who were the recipients of this letter? Now, I don't know about you, but when I write something, whether it's an email or if I'm writing a letter to somebody, I'm writing with a specific intent because I'm writing to someone specific, right? There's a, there's a, there's a recipient that's receiving whatever it is that I'm writing, and, and understanding who they are and what they're dealing with gives me a better understanding of what that letter means. So who are the recipients? Well, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 to 14, Verse 19, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 13, make it clear that the letter is addressed to believers, period. But it never tells us in any way who they were or where they lived. We don't know. The fact that it mentions no one by name suggests that this is one of those letters that circulated amongst the churches. And Christians uh, in that day, it was not uncommon for them to receive a letter from one of the apostles and circulate it amongst the churches in, the, in their area. And evidence from early Christian writers actually places the Apostle John in Ephesus during most of his later years, A.D. 70 to 100. And the earliest confirmed use of 1 John, right? If you want to know when it was first used, it was in the Roman province of Asia, what we would now call modern Turkey, where Ephesus was located. A guy by the name of Clement of Alexandria, uh, who was around in that first century, he indicates that John ministered in various churches scattered throughout that province. And so it could be assumed, therefore, that First John was sent to the churches, the province of Asia. And the other indication of that, of course, is also that if we look at the book of Revelation, uh, the churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation are from the province of Asia, and John wrote the book of Revelation. So there's good evidence to suggest that he was writing to these believers in Asia. When did he write it? All right, well, the belief is that it ranges, if you can imagine this, because this is actually like very close to the span of my life, uh, the date ranges from 60 AD to 100 AD. Somewhere in that 40-year period, it's believed to have been written. Most modern scholarship places it around 95 AD. This is actually very much towards the tail end of John's life. But there is good reason to believe that it was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So that's why their range is from 60 to 100. The basic gist is people are saying this, you know, I wasn't there. But this seems to be the most logical time frame in which it was written. So that's some of the background. So we have an understanding of who wrote it. We believe that John wrote it. I think there's ample evidence to suggest that this is the Apostle John. We have evidence to suggest who he wrote it to and when he wrote it. But I think it's critically important for us to understand the importance of the writing itself. John does some interesting things in his writing. He's got a wide variety of what you would call contrasts. Here's what I mean. Christ versus antichrists. Light versus darkness. Truth versus falsehood. Righteousness versus sin, love of the Father versus love of the world, the Spirit of God versus the Spirit of the Antichrist. And this is not a complete, comprehensive list, but you can get the point already that it reveals a letter that represents or presents the world in a really uncomplicated way. 
There's right and there's wrong. Period. This is John's worldview. There is right and there is wrong. Now I know that many of you in the room and many of you at home that are going to be checking this out, I know that this is the world that you prefer. Somebody tell you what is right and what is wrong. Period. No gray. You know a lot of people who love the fact that there is no gray in this particular writing. But this emphasis by John, while striking, it's actually not without love. And so even though he's talking about Christ and Antichrist, he never divorces it from a language of love. So for John to correct somebody is an act of love, not an act of anger. In fact, John recognizes that love comes from God, and he encouraged believers to one, love one another in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 that we read. And so I, I will say this to you. If we as believers interact with other believers who have sin in their life, who have incorrect teaching in their life, and we do not ask questions, if we do not address it, you need to know they're walking, we are walking away from behaving in a loving manner towards those brothers and sisters in faith. To correct, to teach, to encourage, all of these things are an act of love. John's first epistle teaches that while it's important to recognize the lines between truth and error, it always must be done in the spirit of love. So what's his big idea? It's the big stuff that he's actually trying to get at. Well, as he did in the gospel, John stated with clarity the pur purpose of his first letter. He actually proclaimed the good news about Jesus to the recipients of this letter, saying, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Later, John adds, so that you may not sin, and so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so he's got a variety of purposes that you see coming out of this letter. And John ultimately wants his readers to experience true fellowship with God and true fellowship with people. And true fellowship with God means that we have to have a right understanding of who God is. And true fellowship with his people means that we have to be people who walk in love. And that we walk as Jesus walked. One of the key passages is one of my favorites from this book is first john chapter 2 verse 6 those who say they are in christ must walk as jesus walked but he knew that it would not happen until christians set aside their own selfish desire in favor of the pursuits of god and what he had for them and so to help them attain this goal john focused on what you could say were three really key issues the first thing that you can do if you're doing a, a chapter summary, if you're going to break out an outline of what the first John is all about, the first thing you can say is God is light. It's one of the key things. God is light. In chapters one, chapter one, all the way to chapter two, verse two, we have this packed in. It's almost like a three-point sermon that he's created. There's a lot of people who suggest that John's letter is actually less of a letter and more of a sermon. Because he's not addressing specific individuals and he's bringing across biblical truths. And he talks about things like how little children may have fellowship with God. And so he says that we do this by walking in light. 
that we walk in light, that we confess sin. Now, by the way, I should mention that to walk in light is to not walk in darkness, right? To walk in light is to walk in truth. It's to walk in freedom. It's to walk towards the Lord, not away from the Lord. And we have here also by confessing sin. How do we walk away from darkness? Well, one of the ways you walk away from darkness is not just to stop sinning, but to confess our sins to one another. That we confess to one another. And he also says that by advocating Christ, or the advocacy of Christ, actually, God is light. Secondly, you'll find that he says that God is love. Now, if anyone was speaking about love, John actually is the one who spoke about it the most. John is one who identified with the love of the Father in a way that the others didn't communicate. And I think that makes it one of the most critical readings that we could have. God is love. That's 1 John 4, 8. But chapters 2, yeah, chapters 2 all the way up to chapter 4 is where we have this packed in. How the dear children may have fellowship with each other is by walking in love. Now, this is amazing to me because what he's doing here is he's picking up on the things that Jesus was saying, right? How will the world know that we are his disciples? It actually tells us that the world is given one measuring stick, only one, to evaluate whether or not we are true disciples of Jesus. You know what it is? Our love for one another. By this the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And so if we don't love one another, John says that we do not know God. Because God is love. I mean, these are harsh truths. I mean, John is one of these guys who just bites, right? Like he just, he says something and he, and he just seems like everybody thinks that John is just this super gentle, loving guy. John is a son of thunder. And so there's nothing in the scriptures that gives the indication that John is just this simple little gentle guy. He's a son of thunder. And so when he's communicating this, he's saying things in a way that he's trying to impress importance on people. He says, dear children must not love the world. And when we're talking about God is love, that we are not to love the world. That's chapter 2, verse 15 to 28. And so we're to love God, not the world. And if we are going to have love for the world, by the way, what we, what we should have is not loving the world in the sense that, that we crave the things of the world, but we are to love the world in the way that the Father loves the world. We know that God loved the world. How do we know? Because he said so. And you know where he said it? Through John. John 3.16. And John 3.17 is equally important. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so our love for the world should bring us to a place where we don't have a desire to condemn it. We have a desire to see it saved through Christ. 
How the dear children may know each other and their lives together. This is, again, that we are to be loving. And, and we talk about it this way. It says that the Father's love for His children is mentioned and, and just profound in terms of our depth of understanding, or at least in terms of what we need to grow into. It's First John chapter 2, verse 29, all the way to chapter 3, verse 3. I mean, if ever there is a person that has questions about whether or not they are loved by God, they got to read First John. Because he just spells it out. And he spells out the Christian walk in a way that can sometimes be uncomfortable for us to hear. But we got to remember, we're listening to a son of thunder. Of course it's going to be uncomfortable. But it's good. And there are two natures of the believer in action in 1 John 3, verses 4 to 24. There's, and then there's this huge conversation about dealing with false teachers. One of the reasons that John had to write what he wrote was because there were false teachers that came into the church. And you need to know that that false teachers are in the Christian church even today. There are people who will change the gospel message. It'll be Jesus and. And they'll add all these different kinds of restrictions that need to be added to our faith in order to prove that we are believers. There is no such thing as Jesus and. There is just Jesus. Because last I checked, God's enough. God's enough. So there's this warning against false teachers. And that we are to be prepared to be able to give answer to false teachers. That we're to walk away from false teachers. But John's desire for the false teachers is that they would repent. And for anyone who is uncomfortable with somebody calling out the name of a false teacher nowadays, you just got to know that Paul and John didn't have that same level of discomfort. They called out the false teachers by name. That's uncomfortable. Because that is not the society we live in, is it? And so John wrote to churches. Sorry, and then lastly, so we got God is light, God is love. And then lastly, you ready? Because this is critical. This is the thing that matters almost the most. God is life. God is life. And you have this language and this understanding that John has that there is victory over the world. There's victory over sin in Christ, through Christ. But not only that, not only is there victory over sin and victory over the world, there is assurance of salvation. I don't know how many times I've had to address the question in a conversation with somebody about whether or not they can be assured that they are saved. Can I tell you this? Nowhere in the Scriptures... Anywhere, anywhere, can you find any indication that you should have to be worried about it? It actually tells us that we can know that we're saved. We can know. And John's not the only one who talks about it. Paul talks about it. In Romans chapter 10, he says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Not that you might be, and it's not that you might be if you do all the right things. It's you believe this, you confess this, you are saved, period. No ands, ifs, or buts. And John backs up that teaching with assurance of salvation in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 21. And all of this is going to be in the sermon notes that are online. But you need to deep dive into this for yourself. I'm going to give you an overview over, over this particular book. And uh, the next two studies are going to be overviews of those two books. But you've got to dive deep into these things. Because when you do, I promise you, 
that the Word of God will change you. It'll move you. It's, it's an incredible, incredible thing to be moved by God through His Word. John wrote to churches full of people who had struggled with discouragement, whether due to their own sinful natures or the presence of false teachers in their midst. They struggled. And this aging apostle hoped to ignite a zeal of these believers so that they might follow the Lord more closely and stand firmly against those who meant to create division amongst the churches. You know what he's really doing here? I mean, you've got to understand that there was tremendous persecution in the church in those days. John, uh, right before writing the book of Revelation, I don't know how many of you know this, but they tried to kill John. It just didn't work. Uh, they tried to boil him in oil. And he didn't die. Son of thunder. I don't know what that has to do with the boiling of oil. <laughs> just sounds like he's tough, right? But John's desire was that people would be excited about the Lord, excited about their faith, that there would be a zeal within them to grow and to learn, and not just to grow and to learn, but to share. Nowhere, nowhere in the Word do you find people who receive something from the Lord and don't share it. And John's desire for these believers that are discouraged because of their own sin in their lives, uh, John's desire for these believers who are discouraged because of false teachers that are among them is that there would be a zeal that would well up within them, that they would share and live out the gospel message in a holistic way. John, John's a good dude. And he's fun to read. He's fun to read. And so in doing so, they would solidify their relationship with God and gain confidence in His work in their lives. You see, that's what zeal and faith does. It gives us more confidence in God. Why? Because we're required to rely on Him more. You know that idea that there are people who would say something like this, God will never give you more than you can handle. You've probably heard that before, right? Okay, I just want to let you know that that's garbage and a really misreading of Scripture. Uh, the first thing is, is really this. The, the passage actually says God is not going to give you more than you can handle, and that's talking about temptation at that point. Outside of that, God's going to give you more than you can handle. You want to know why? So that you're forced to rely on Him. Because if you can handle it, you don't need Him. And so the more you try to live life like you can handle it, just recognize that there might be some things coming along the way that are going to cause you to say, oh, wait a second, I can't handle this. God, I need you. And then he says, yeah. And so he wants them to gain confidence of the Lord's work in their life. John, 1 John's role in the Bible is actually closely related to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is written to persuade non-Christians to believe in Jesus and find eternal life in His name. John chapter 20, verse 31. The whole purpose of the book of John. The first letter of John is written so that those who believe in Jesus would know that they have in fact found new life in Him. And if you're wondering how the teaching of 1 John played out in real life, you're going to love 2nd and 3rd John. Those two very short letters apply 1 John's general teachings about truth, love, and obedience 
to specific local church situations. And there's no other book in the Bible that talks as often about love as 1 John. About one in every 50 words is a form of love. And so that actually makes for about 52 mentions of love in five short chapters. So in five short chapters, there's 52 mentions of the word love. Does that make you think that it might be important? And John's understanding of love, it's not the superficial understanding that we generally have. John's understanding of love is the understanding that Jesus gave him. Here's Jesus' understanding of love. You ready? Love your enemies. They are my enemies for a reason. And John says, or Jesus says, love them. And so that takes the superficial love that we often just attribute to a feeling and say, no, love is a decision that requires action and faithfulness. You see, because I cannot love my enemies apart from the Holy Spirit that Jesus places in my life. Can't. I'm not that good. I'm good at making enemies. I might even be good at keeping them. Not always the greatest at loving them. And so this mention of love in the Bible is critical in its significance. And it's no surprise that love is the evidence of salvation according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. And John even says that God Himself is love. So imagine this. Okay, so God is love, which means, and Jesus is God. So then Jesus is love. And First John chapter two verse six says that if I say that I am in Jesus, then I need to live like Jesus lived, which means I need to live in love. Son of Thunder, making some uncomfortable statements, but they're true. They're true. So what do I do with this? How do I apply the book of 1 John to my life? Well, the book of 1 John is a book of love and joy. You need to understand that straight off the hop. Like It is a book about love and joy. It explains the fellowship that we have with others. It explains the fellowship that we have with Jesus. There is nothing more exciting about that. I get to have fellowship with Jesus. Think about that. Creator of all things, that through Him, to Him, and for Him, all things were made. I get to have fellowship with Him. That's awesome. He's approachable. He desires relationship. He pursues me. I get to have fellowship with Jesus. And not only that, in a world that feels or claims to be so connected because of online stuff, a world that has never felt so disconnected, we have fellowship with each other. That two people within the kingdom can be so diametrically different and in any other scenario, we'll probably never have fellowship with each other. Jesus brings fellowship for everybody. I mean, you can sit there with the person that you're with, or so you can look around the room, you can look at home, and you can be staring at me, and you can say, I got nothing in common with you. You're probably right. But you know what we do have in common? Jesus and the Holy Spirit that He places in our life as a seal of our salvation. And it's this one spirit that draws us all together. We have something that cannot be duplicated. It is not superficial. It is profound. And it is based on love. 
It differentiates between happiness, which is temporary and fleeting, and true joy, which First John tells us how to even achieve. He actually, you ever wonder how to gain true joy? John says it. Read it. Read it. And if we take the words written by John and we apply them to our daily lives, the true love, the commitment, the fellowship, and the joy we long for will be ours. That's the truth. So the Apostle John knew Christ well. And he is telling us that we can all have that close, intimate relationship with Jesus. The Gospel writers present their solidly based testimony on historical reality. John is not talking about a pipe dream. He's talking about his own personal journey with Jesus. And he's teaching others how to have the same. So how does that apply to my everyday life? Well, it explains to us that Jesus came here as the Son of God to create union with us based on His grace, His mercy, His love, and His acceptance. And so many times people think that Jesus is off in some faraway place that He doesn't really have any concerns for us. Any concerns for our daily struggles, our issues, our concerns, or whether or not we have to wear masks or socially distance. But John is telling us that Jesus is right here. Which is both the simple, which, sorry, with us in both the simple and mundane parts of our lives and also in the complex, soul wrenching parts as well. It's present. Always. Always. John testifies as a witness of his personal experiences that God became flesh and lived among men. And that means that Christ came here to live with us and he still lives with us. He walked the earth alongside John and he walks through each and every day with us. And we need to apply this truth to our lives and live as if Jesus is standing right next to us every second of every day. But even in that thinking, let's not get trapped in the wishful thinking that, man, I just wish Jesus was inside me. Listen, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus actually said, it's better that I go so that the comforter will come. You know a good way to say that? Simple. It is better to have the Holy Spirit in me than Jesus beside me. That's what he's saying. And if we put this truth into practice, this idea that, that Christ is with us, the Holy Spirit is present in us, that Christ will add holiness to our lives, making us more and more like Him, that we will be conformed to the image of the Son. We call that sanctification, that we become more and more like Jesus. And we go through the ups and downs in our Christian faith. And when we struggle, whether outside or on the inside, we feel ourselves blown about by every wind of emotion or circumstance. And yet God calls us to live lives of increasing consistency. With the evidence of our inner transformation becoming more and more apparent as the months and years pass by. We are not to be taken to every flight of emotion. Emotion's awesome. There's nothing wrong with it. We are given it by God. Of course it's good. He doesn't want us tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, and especially now as John is addressing false doctrines in the Gospels. He's, sorry, in, in, in his writing. John knew that we would never find ourselves find in ourselves the faithfulness that God requires, and instead we have to place complete trust in the work and grace of God believing that He will certainly conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus. You see, John had this understanding 
that if we were just trying to put all this effort in on our own, we'd never make it. And quite frankly, I think most of us can attest to the same truth. That if we were just trying to do this on our own, we'd never make it. We probably long would have given up. So we just can't do it. But God can. And that sense of being grounded in God only comes when we set aside our sin in pursuit of the one true God. Or in John's words, he says it this way in 1 John 4.12. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So, I'll leave you with a parting question. How would you characterize your relationship with God? John is saying that he wants us to have fellowship with God, fellowship with each other, and stay away from false teachers. And God is light, God is love, God is life. What's your relationship with God? Is it consistent and fruitful? Or is it sporadic and parched? Are you in an oasis or a desert? Where's your relationship with God? And regardless of your answer, my answer to you is the same. You ready? Read 1 John. Marinate in 1 John. Read it slowly. Read it consistently. Read it faithfully. But read it and internalize the truths that are there because they are amazing. God is light. God is love. God is life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you are exactly who you say you are. You are light. You are love. You are life. And so Jesus, as we are here and as we're taking in this, this study, this understanding of 1 John, I pray, Lord, that you will give us eyes that are open to see what it is you have for us, ears that are open to hear what you have for us, hearts, our spirits open to receive what you have for us. And I pray, Jesus, that we will deep dive into the truths that we find in your word so that we can be more faithful followers of who you are and experience true joy from you. In your holy and precious name I pray. Amen.